This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. I'm thrilled to have a distinguished guest, Robert or Bob M. Santer, PhD, who's joining us today. Dr. Santer is the esteemed author of the book, Navigating the Engineering Organization, A New Engineer's Guide. Dr. Santer will take us on a journey through the challenges and triumphs of transitioning from a new engineering graduate to a knowledgeable engineering professional. We will delve into the common hurdles faced by engineering graduates when entering the professional world, the significance of adopting a people-first perspective and mindset and understanding organizational culture, and the vital aspects that engineers should focus on to navigate and thrive within formal organizational structures. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm the founder of More Than Engineering, which you can find at morethaneng.com. And this is the Engineering Career Coach podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. Now let's jump right in. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of this episode. Today I have the pleasure to have with me Bob Santer, PhD. He's the author of the new book, Navigating the Engineering Organization, A New Engineer's Guide. Bob, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Jeff. Bob, I'm curious about this book, and I know we're going to dive into this idea like new engineers trying to navigate engineering organization. There's a lot to this. So to start off, I'd love to hear just a little bit about your own story of transitioning from a new engineering graduate. Maybe we can think back a few years to becoming a knowledgeable and experienced engineering professional. And what are some of the challenges that you faced during that time? I appreciate the opportunity. Me making personally the transformation from a student into an engineering professional, which is really what coming to a new organization is. I knew a lot about the technology, the FMEAs, the computational fluid dynamics end of the thing. What I didn't know and I didn't realize was critically important for a new person coming into an engineering organization was how to deal with the culture, the softer side of the organization. And the fact that it's a big, big question mark coming in, especially when you join a larger organization. And a lot of time was spent that I didn't anticipate spending on understanding that new world that I was living in. Let's elaborate on this, and maybe we can generalize this to engineering graduates today even, as you work with them and you've been a professor and taught at universities and you've also been on the professional side. What do you see as some of the challenges that new engineering graduates are often encountering when they enter the professional world? You were talking about translating, hey, I know the technical side, but navigating through some of the softer side. But what do you see in our modern day that people are facing? I kind of call it the paradox of promotion. And what I mean by that is that all the things that makes an engineer successful as a student, as an academic, as a scholar, the technological 
uh, skills, the understanding of what goes into calculation, and uh, all the other things that being a good engineer entails. When you are promoted, that is, you take your first professional job, many, many, many of those skills immediately become somewhat irrelevant. Different skill set is needed, and it's needed immediately. So what we as engineers have to do is, knowing that we've got some technical chops, we now get, have to understand the softer side of the organization and how to integrate or fit into the existing organization that you've chosen to join. I may be an engineer who getting good grades and you know really proficient in, in the tools, the techniques, and the analysis that I've been asked to do, but I get into a professional organization and suddenly just getting to the right answer on an assignment or a test or doing this enclosed project with the grading rubric is not how I need to be successful. So what's the shift then is I think about it for myself because I was one of those students and I struggled with some of that transition. And for me, one of the reasons why I loved science and engineering when I was in school is because it felt like there was always a right answer or a wrong answer, right? Things were really objective. But the realities that I got faced with when I entered into organizations and working with people is that people who were developing products and services and processes for are subjective, right? And so we really need to understand people through this process. So how do you think through that as we're trying to meld the technical skills, which yes, we need to have, but with working with the people in these organizations? Well, let me give you an example that I had that uh, was one of those cringeworthy moments. <laughs> I had just joined a, a large aircraft company as a designer. And one of my first assignments from my supervisor was to compare the weight of two air compressor designs that was going to go into an aircraft. And my supervisor said, Bob, if you can go ahead and compare the, the weights of that and let me know what might be the, the lower weight. So I went ahead and did all of my work that I'd been trained to do. And at the end of the day, I had gotten one of the compressor analyses done. Well, the next morning, my supervisor came up to me about 8 o'clock and says, well, what'd you find out? And I said, well, design A is 32.735 pounds. And he says, what's the other one? And I said, well, I haven't done that yet. And he looked at me and he says, what do you mean you haven't done it yet? He says, didn't you know we're going to be presenting this to the chief engineer in one half hour at 8.30? No, I didn't. <laughs> so he said, well, all right, we're going to have to tell him something. So we went to the meeting, and rather than myself making the presentation, my supervisor did and had to tell the chief engineer in front of a number of peoples, we did not have the answer. The chief engineer looked annoyed, and he says, well, okay, I want it by the end of the day. So we came out of there, and I learned something very, very important. Actually, a couple things. First, there was a valid communication did not go on. In the fact that my supervisor came up to me and said, do this, and didn't tell me when it was due. <laughs> I had to make an assumption that was wrong, that I had a couple days to do it. And in reality, I only had one day, eight hours to do it. The second thing was the answer, which was a how many pounds. I was doing an, an analysis to three decimal places, thinking that I was, you know, being a very good engineer. 
when instead the supervisor only wanted it within the closest tenth of a pound. Okay, so because the key thing was speed of the analysis, not fine, fine accuracy or precision of the analysis. So I learned those things about I have to interview my supervisor in a way to say, what do you want exactly? When do you want it? And what are the constraints on this assignment? So I understand completely what you're looking for because we have not had common experience together. So that was one of my early eye-opening experiences, if you will. Yeah, important. And you see kind of the opportunity for both you as the employee and your manager to both take responsibility in that communication process. That's right. Ideally, as a new engineer, like we would love to see a manager be able to help you through that and provide those parameters and everything of the project and the request and the tasks that he was asking you to do. But you saw an opportunity that instead of just being subject to whatever your manager gives you, that you could learn to ask better questions and get those things for yourself to take that responsibility for yourself in the future. So everyone has that responsibility to improve the communication as we work together in organizations. That's right. And I suspect that sometimes new engineers don't wish to ask questions because of the fear that they may be considered not smart enough or being a rookie or they should not ask these types of questions. The other thing that goes into this is the importance of asking questions early on has to do with the speed of work. Decision-making is incredibly fast now. The pace of work is incredibly fast and getting faster. So your management, your supervisor or manager, frankly, does not have a lot of time to necessarily give fine detail. You have to go get it from them as opposed to it being volunteered to you. So it's becoming more of an advocate for your understanding of what's going on in this new organization you've just joined. You think about moving from an educational or academic situation into an organizational structure. There are different types of formalities that exist in each. And we were already talking about like, okay, what paradox of success or promotion, like, you know, some of those things that are valued or, or devalued in different circumstances. But in the formality of the structure and how to navigate through that, how do you think engineers can pay attention to learn and navigate and succeed within the structure of the organization and how things work there? It's a good question, and it's not a, a straightforward, easy answer. In reality, in a organization, there are different zones or buckets. One of the buckets is the formal organization. The formal organization is the one that an outsider would see. That's an organization chart. That's a financial result in a, a governmental filing, something like that. It's the thing that, that the organization presents to the outside world. Equally, if not more important, is the hidden organization. People talk about culture, which has become much more prevalent now. And the culture is the hidden organization. It's not obvious at all, and it, you have to become sensitized to it as quickly as possible so that you don't make the mistake of making wrong assumptions. And then there's also obviously um, money that goes into it, the resources and so on, and communication. So there's a number of things that a new person needs to become familiar with and somewhat well-versed in these different items so that 
you have a better understanding of what's going on as these buckets interact, and they interact, and sometimes strongly. So uh, you'll see, for instance, in a formal organization, certain things that are like an organization chart. You get into the actual organization, you find out the organization chart is not accurate. It's something that was done two years ago, and nobody's had time to update it. So as a result, the hidden organization doesn't look like the organization chart, and that can be somewhat confusing at best. Ideally, if the formal organization chart is updated, like that's that's a more straightforward, like you know who your boss is, who their peers are, and and who the different divisions or teams are and whatnot that you're working with. But this idea of the hidden organization is interesting. Like I've seen that to be true in multiple organizations that I've worked in and worked with. It often drives like these informal networks and power dynamics, right? And so it's not explicit generally. How can engineers you know, acknowledge that it's there, but then go through that process to become aware of and navigate the hidden organization in an effective way. That requires training and it requires attention. Really, because the hidden organization is hidden, it's invisible, it's almost like you have to find yourself a pair of x-ray glasses and put them on so you can see what's going on underneath the surface. A lot of the cultural models out there uh, one is called the iceberg model, and the fact that above the surface where you can see is maybe 10 to 15 percent of the organization, that's visible. But the other 80, 85 percent are hidden underwater, and you've got to know how to read the signals that they're there. They are there, and they're very important. It's up to you as the individual to begin to be, become skilled at reading those, those signals. That's number one. And number two is to absolutely keep this front of mind because there is no book, there is no training. People are not going to necessarily tell you that it even exists. So you have to look at cause and effect. Why did that person do what they did at that time? Why is that? And begin to ask those types of questions to say, and maybe even talk to them and say, why did you do that? And you'll find out by being curious, you can find out an awful lot of what's going on based on not only what's going on today, but what happened in the past which is directly influencing what happens today and what will happen tomorrow. You start to just become more aware and see those patterns and see the people that are pulling strings and, or just have the ability to get things done or have influence that maybe is informal, but they just end up sometimes being linchpins to accomplish things that you need to know or, or be aware of in, in different circumstances. That's correct. You know, one of the things about the hidden organization has to do with the idea of quid pro quo. Quid pro quo means basically I do something for you, you do something for me. And that's a mutually beneficial situation. And a lot of people use that to become more powerful themselves within the organization. They've got people they can talk to, especially in crisis situations, that can do favors and that can they are willing to come on and help you uh, when you need to create a task force quickly or need some special analysis quickly, you know where who to go to and you know that the relationship is strong and trustful. And that's critical because in almost every organization that I've ever seen, unless it's a really, really small organization, the people that are helping you accomplish a, a task or a project or a design or whatever you're working on rarely are encapsulated in just one team that exists in the formal engineering structure. You are 
collaborating and needing to work with people across teams, across organizations within the large organization. And so we need to understand those things because rarely are they self-encapsulated that all work under the same manager in the formal structure. Like, And so sometimes it feels like resources are fighting against each other, but really we need to look at the big picture of what we're trying to accomplish together and be able to work effectively in those circumstances. And that many times is hard to do because you have, say, a, a task force is a, a particular goal that you bring together different people from different organizations. Everybody has a role to play and a responsibility to deliver. So if you're a design engineer, in your task force or in your project team, you will have finance, reliability, warranty, uh, marketing, business office, a lot of non-engineering organizations that all contribute. Well, unfortunately, those individuals are being measured by their home organization. For instance, finance is being measured for their performance review by the finance department. Finance department has a goal for that individual finance person of minimizing cost. That's well and good, but that may not be the best solution for the product at whole or the team at whole. So there's this situation, a push-pull of we want to do well for the project or for the task force, but we have individuals that are measuring us on different scale. And that is something that is a continuous problem with groups, a task force that needs to be taken care of, uh, honored, and mitigated as much as possible. I want to shift here, Bob, to talk about the idea of the individual engineer trying to be improve this awareness, self-awareness within the context of the organization. Sometimes we're not aware of how we impact others or what our role really is and, and trying to understand that so we it helps us prioritize. How do you go about doing that to improve self-awareness and how we're impacting and working with people in the work environment? At its core, I think that it has to do with each individual and examining their mindset, the set of assumptions that he or she might have going into that first position, that first job. We come out of, of school and we see, well, this is how we've been taught at university. This is how we've been taught in an academic way, which is beautiful. And it, it, you nail that technical knowledge pretty well, which is what job is. Coming out, though, we tend to have certain beliefs, certain understandings, certain biases. And those have to be examined early on through self-awareness. Find out where you sit right now in terms of your beliefs and then see, is that a valid, still a valid mindset? So, for instance, the idea of contingency. Everything, almost all we do is contingent. That is, it depends. Even in the sciences and mathematics, my favorite example of that is if you ask uh, somebody how much is one plus one, and they'll tell you, well, it's two. Well, that's true, but it's not the only answer because the one plus one is a base 10 answer. If you go to base two, one plus one is 10. So it, the answer is good for the limitations of the situation you're in, but you can actually say the correct answer is an infinite number of answers. So that's an idea, uh, an example of a mindset. 
for instance, the other example is, you know, you ask somebody how many planets are there. And, uh, you know, well, that's science, that's astronomy, and so it's eight. Okay, well, that's dependent upon the answer either before uh, 1938 or after 2009. And between 38 and 09, there were nine planets. Pluto got demoted in 09. So the answer is dependent upon what year are we talking about. So that's the idea of examining the type of assumptions that we have that we operate around going into an organization and then testing those assumptions against what you're finding out in the particular workplace that you're in. I find those assumptions to be extremely powerful because often we're operating on these assumptions that aren't factual. And sometimes there are assumptions about the organization or about another person or about what's going to happen to ourselves if there's a mindset and an assumption or belief that might be holding us back from taking an action or taking a risk or trying something new. But we assume that if we do that, we're going to be seen or fail or, or something else is going to happen that can actually diminish our ability to create more value for the organization sometimes because we're operating on an assumption that is often not true because it's an assumption. It's not a fact. We don't know. And so we need to make those assumptions explicit and see if we can validate them to be true or not in different cases. Right. Everything we do is embedded in an environment. And I'm not talking about a green environment. I'm talking about an environment of, that's around us. What is the environment the company is in? What is the environment that you are in? Being able to then begin to really understand how that environment affects the work you're doing. Just as your work affects the outside environment you work in, your environment affects you inside the organization. It's both. And being aware of that, so that will hopefully guide the decisions you make and the actions that you take. We talked a little bit about this, but I want to dive in some more around this idea of effective communication. So critical in an engineering organization Again, not just communicating what's the technical analysis result, like you were talking about with your example earlier, but what really needs to be communicated. So how do we deal with engineers effectively communicating in teams, learning what we need to communicate, and then effectively actually sharing, and then also recognize that communication is two ways, so we also need to take in and listen as well. So what's your approach to that? That's a fantastic topic. It's very large and fairly complex. The answer is there are many, many, many aspects of communication, and it can be complicated by so many outside factors. For instance, not only the mode of how you're going to communicate, for instance, are you going to do a text, an email, a telephone call, an in-person meeting, a, a broadcast, a podcast, and that, but what is the message that you're trying to communicate? How important is the message? How timely is the message? How critical is it? If there's a bad communication, will there be a serious outcome to that that you may not like? What if you're in crisis? What kind of a communication mode do you do there? What if it's a common routine meeting or interaction? For instance, there's lots of examples using like this Zoom or other types of video communication, many people say, well, that's all we need because of the uh, we've got video, we've got audio, what more do you need? Well, that's true for routine and low 
complexity situations. There are many other situations, and especially important information that's being communicated to and from, that you need high-fidelity communication, which normally means face-to-face, even though if you've got to travel to Asia or or Europe to make the face-to-face, there are certain situations you've got to have that you've got to spend the money, you've got to take the time, and you've got to communicate it because a lot of communication is trust and understanding. And many times you can't gain that trust or importance unless you actually get together, look each other in the eye, and establish that understanding. So communication, there are techniques that basically you can work through by asking yourself various questions about what am I seeking to communicate, who, what, when, where, how, and why. And with knowing the answers to those questions, you can then design a communication that will get you closer to that nirvana of the perfect communication. You're talking about all these different contexts of communicating in different ways in different circumstances. Now, I want to bring this to a more personal level and think about an engineer who's trying to kind of find their way in their formal and informal relationships in the field, in their organization, everything. I think about myself as an engineer, uh, especially early on, I often really was focused on trying to be liked by the people that I was working with. I'm kind of a pleaser. I want people to, oh yeah, I like working with Jeff. That's a good thing. But that's a little bit different than trying to be respected and really seen as someone who is worth going to that they can be relied upon, right? So what do you think about the tension between those two ideas, like seeking to be liked versus being respected? How do they manage? Are you trying to do both at the same time? What's the right way to go about that? It's an important question, and it's incredibly personal. I mentioned earlier the self-assessment, the self-mindset. And it has to do, frankly, with a very important point that's not talked about very much, which is ethics. Ethics will drive how you act, what you believe, and whether you will be liked or respected. Now, I'm sure everybody wants to be liked and respected. You know, that's a wonderful place. That's all rainbows and unicorns. But the reality is, is that many, many times, and there don't have to be big decisions, but many times, especially when working with others, you will be asked to make a decision, which is to either be liked or respected. Respected means that maybe there's an answer to an analysis that will not be popular, that may hurt the program and that you have to take full responsibility for that analysis and say, based on my work, this is not the good way to go, and say it even though many, many people in the meeting room will not like you for that. You could just leave some information out, and then you could be liked. This goes down to your personal ethics. Personal ethics, I'm not talking here about Deepwater Horizon or Exxon Valdez or the um, Volkswagen scandal regards diesel emissions and all these things. Those are corporate ethics issues. I'm talking about personal ethics issues, which we will all be faced with and many times not be faced with any time to think about it. You will be presented with an ethical issue, even if it's something to do with a test report, even if it's something to do with a conclusion. You may or may not be asked to reconsider or that, and you don't have time to think about it. You have to come up with your answer immediately. So 
knowing that your ethical background is strong, even for these small personal items, if you have that ahead of time, you're better able to be able to field those questions, decide whether you're going to be liked or be respected. So it's an important area. And my experience has been that we all will be presented with these little dilemmas that we're going to be have to uh, address. So really is worthwhile to be thinking about these things and get ready for that inevitable day. A quote I really love is, uh, when the time for performance is present, the time for preparation is past. So these moments come upon us, but the preparation and, and how we prepare, you know, identifying those values that we want to live by and work by need to be done ahead of time so that when the moment comes that we're ready to go. It really helps. Bob, this has been such a fun conversation. We've covered a lot of different ground. At this point, we're going to transition over to the Take Action Today segment of the show. We'll get one final piece of action advice from you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Take Action Today segment of this episode. Bob, we've covered a lot of ground in our conversation. They talked about communication, entering into a new organization, structures, both formal and informal, all sorts of different things. We've got a lot of people listening here who are new graduates or about to graduate or just early in their careers trying to navigate through in the professional world, what's the final piece of actionable advice that you would share with them to take as we end off this episode? It has to do with looking at mindset that you as an individual bring into the organization. For instance, what we talk about is the fact that we need to understand that contingency is everything in an organization, meaning that it depends. This fact A depends upon situation B. Fact C is dependent upon situation D. That's very important. And related to that, that facts are not necessarily absolute. The contingency operates on facts. So if you are doing an assignment that's based on facts, you got to know where the facts, what the assumptions behind the facts are. That's important. So that's part of changing the mindset for yourself. You need to know the limits of engineering by understanding the environment that you are in. You need to understand the environment so that you can do contingent engineering that gets closer to the reality of what you're attempting to do. Really, you need to have a strive to have a working knowledge of not only your technical specialty, but the systems that are being run the formal organization and that all-important hidden organization and the communication that surrounds all those. It's important to have a good working knowledge of that. Finally, a good philosophy is be curious. Be curious of what's going on around you. I don't think you can expect to have any management come to you and say, oh, let me show, let me tell you about this, that, and the other. They're too busy. Instead, the attitude or the mindset of, it's my own personal responsibility to find out what in the world is going on, and uh, that will serve you in a lot of good ways going forward. Bob, such a fun conversation. Thanks so much for being here. If people are interested in checking out this new book that you've had come out or connecting with you in any other ways, where would you point them? You can find the book. It's called Navigating the Engineering Organization, A New Engineer's Guide. Just out uh, in the past two months, 
You can find it in um, on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and the uh, website for the publisher, which is CRC Press. You can find it in any one of those places, and then you'll find links to how to get a hold of us. And I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share what we found out so much, Jeff, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here, and wish you nothing but success, and hope people find a lot of value out of the book as they get it as well. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great. It's been a lot of fun now. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to engineeringmadeintuitinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources or websites that we mentioned in the episode. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars this month at the website as well. Additionally, for any engineers who feel like they need extra help taking the next career step or finding clarity in their careers, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com or you can go grab my career clarity checklist found at www.engineeringcareeraccelerator.com slash career clarity. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.